Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. 1968, November of 1968, was really kind of the onset of maybe the most chaotic period in modern American history. And one of the artifacts that became attached to that time is the White Album. This was a time when sex and turmoil and death hung over the land and became kind of equated with one another. And rock music also fed into that equation. And this strange, problematic, unlabeled, unmarked album from the most powerful and popular group in the world erupted on the scene and challenged even its most ardent fans. We're going to talk 50 years later about that album today. I'd be happy playing the same whole song, but uh, we have a lot to talk about here. Uh, we're going to talk about the White Album, uh, and we're going to talk about it with uh, some people we've talked about the Beatles with in the past. Scott Fryman is a musicologist, composer, and a producer, and he's the lecturer behind the series known as Deconstructing the Beatles. Steve Metcalf is often referred to as the seventh Beatle, um, <laughs> and he is the director of University of Hartford's President's College. I should just say, so I don't forget it, Steve Metcalf and I and Jim Chapterlain and Latanya Farrell, um, about a week from now, on Wednesday the 30th, will be at Watkinson School talking about and performing the work of Elvis. So we're living in the past year, basically. But um, but you can get tickets to that through Watkinson.org. We had our first rehearsal tonight. You guys are like... Last night. Yeah. Last night, yeah. And then the, you guys are like Blind Faith or something. It's like one of these, you know, super groups or something. You're amazing. So uh, it's going to be good. All right, so back to um, the White Album. I guess the, it was released, we should say, in November of... Uh, uh, of 1968, so yeah, the 50th anniversary has kind of come and gone, but you can maybe celebrate it for a year or something. And anyway, I think people kind of came to it at different times a little bit. Um, and I'm going to ask both of you this, um, whether you remember uh, getting and first encountering this music. Metcalf, why don't you start? Okay, I'll try to make this very short, but mm. I remember it very well because <clears throat> one of the local stations here in Hartford announced... Uh, in the afternoon, it was a Sunday afternoon, that it had gotten a hold of the new album, a double album, and was going to play it in its entirety starting at like 8 o'clock or something. Uh, and my then-girlfriend and I had tickets to the Bushnell to hear, believe it or not, Big Brother and the Holding Company. <laughs> I'm dating myself, yeah. which I did often in those days. But um, anyway, I, I told this young woman I would have to break the state because I would have to stay home <laughs> and listen to this album, which I did. 
Uh, and that was the end of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say no more. Yeah. Um, that was Prudence Farrow, too, which has <laughs> made it an even more uncomfortable situation. So, um, Scott, wh- what about you? Well, I'm much younger. That's than true. Steve. You are too young for this, yes. <laughs> so, um, so I got introduced to it around 73 by my uh, uncle who uh, uh, gave me my first Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper and, and the White Album. And after listening to Pepper, putting on the White Album, it was very, very different sounding. And it was actually very, very scary to a 10, 11-year-old, especially when you start getting the sides three and four and... Uh, the the long 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 the, the plaintiff wailing and then uh, Revolution Nine of course I mean it was it was a lot to take in as a as a young kid and I was fascinated by it I just played it over and over and over again I think I was fourteen years old um, I waited I didn't get it until Christmas because a double album was actually kind of expensive uh, so I got it as my Christmas present and I, I remember kind of being a little scared of it even at age 14. There were songs on it that didn't sound that much like the Beatles, to me anyway. There were songs in it that had either a kind of aggression or uh, an ominous quality to them that uh, was hard, I was kind of was hard to understand. For example, even a song like Bungalow Bill, there seems to be a sort of a slight quality of menace running through the whole thing. It just feels like the situation, whatever he's talking about, could get out of hand very easily. Um, and, 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 and you also have to, to remember, um, with uh, the Beatles in 1968 when the album was released, the idea that you would have one album or a double album with songs of so many different styles um, usually when you put on an album, you kind of knew what to expect. If you put on a, a psychedelic album, you know, the Bee Gees' first album, or you put on a Hendrix, or you put on an Elvis, you, you kind of got the same feel, same style throughout the album. And on the White Album, you're going from hard rock to soft rock to avant-garde to country to music hall. I mean, it's almost like every song was a, a surprise, like it was a different band. And that was a lot to take in as to, uh, as well. You know, Steve, I also feel as though another thing that freaked me out a little bit was just the packaging, the 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 lack of any information on the cover. I mean, you know, cover art is kind of all over the place, and, and liner notes are all over the place just in terms of how much they tell you. But they at least tell you something. There's you know, there's there's no it, it, I, I'd never encountered this before. Like like they didn't want me to know something. Mm-hmm. What did you how yeah react to the to blankness of it? <laughs> Well, yeah, I do think that in retrospect, that <clears throat> that white cover, uh, in a way, is a good metaphor for what's inside. Because I think there's a, I, I have to say, in all honesty, my first listenings to that album produced some some disappointment because I was one of those, and and a lot of Beatles fans are not, but I was one of those who w- was constantly sort of wondering what they were going to do next in terms of studio magic and pushing boundaries and, you know, kind of new sounds that we hadn't associated with pop and rock music before and all of that. And and this album really, for the most part, did not continue in that direction and, and instead, you know, seemed to be almost kind of looking backwards. And even, of course, some of the songs refer to pre- previous Beatles songs. So, uh, you know, in a sense, I, I guess the cover, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of reflects that retroness that that pervades the whole album. Well, let's, uh, in terms of studio magic, let's uh, single out another cut here, and this uh, gets into one of Scott's lectures. So let's hear uh, a little bit from Dear Prudence.
let me see you smile again, dear Prudence. Okay, Scott Bryman, tell us a little bit about what we're hearing here. So, um, first of all, um, taking a step back, the Beatles are in India before the White Album Sessions, and uh, they're studying meditation, and they're there with Prudence Farrow, Mia Farrow's sister, who locks herself away to meditate. And John tries to get her out of her room mm. by singing a little ditty, which ultimately becomes the song Dear Prudence. And when they get into the studio... It's one of the times during the White Album sessions where all the Beatles are jamming there, except for one. Ringo has temporarily quit the band. So you've got Paul on drums, uh, but you've got some uh, nice background singers, including Jackie Lomax. You've got uh, George and John on guitar. Paul's also playing bass. And they're working in eight track, which means they can do a backing track, then they can overdub a guitar, then they can overdub hand claps and harmonies, and they're putting it all together. And you can hear in those isolations you just did, the little bits that all go in to make this uh, a great song. It could have been a perfect song with John sitting there with a the guitar, but they put it together in this really beautiful arrangement, and uh, it, it's really nice how it all comes together. And unfortunately, Ringo uh, had to sit that one out. Did you want to say anything about that? Well, I no. want to ask, Scott, was that the song that um, Lennon is playing, the new finger-picking style that Donovan showed him? Is that is that Dear Prudence? Or? That's correct. So w- when they were in India, they were with their friend Donovan. He was one of the other people uh, at the ashram. And while they were there, Donovan taught John this style of finger-picking. And John used that on Dear Prudence. He used it uh, originally on Julia. He used it on, um, uh, on his solo albums uh, all throughout his career from that point forward. And you definitely hear that on Prudence, that whole uh, guitar part, acoustic guitar part, is John's learning from Donovan, that, that finger-picking technique. Not only was Donovan there with him in India, but Mike Love, a person that I refuse to associate with profundity, was also there and had a big influence. Both Donovan and Mike Love had influences on certain songs. One of the reasons that back in the USSR is full of Beach Boys shout-outs is because Mike Love actually you know, had some conversations in the creative process, which I, I find really surprising. But anyway, uh, Steve, one thing that we know is that, yeah, Ringo quit and then came back. George Martin ultimately, you know, the fifth Beatles backed away from this thing. I think Scott Emmerich, the engineer, quit in the middle of it because he couldn't stand them anymore. Um, and, 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 you know, um, I don't know. Talk about that. How much of an impact do you think it has? So so let's talk for just a second uh, about <clears throat> the George Martin thing because, you know, as the years went by and, and, you know, we played this album and deconstructed it, forgive me, Scott, more in our, you know, minds and living rooms, uh, it, it does seem to me that the absence of George Martin, or the, or maybe what we'll call the marginalization of George Martin, really comes through on this on this double album in a lot of different ways, and I and I think we I think we know. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott. I think we know that George was unhappy with his own role, was unhappy with a lot of the material, was even unhappy with the fact that it was a double album. Um, and and so it's it's kind of interesting to me to think about what some of these songs might have sounded like had there been a more, you know, kind of traditional George Martin input into them. Can you name, name one or two songs that you think well, would be? Well, for example, I, uh, you know, I thought that um, Savoy Truffle was a song that could have been a better song. I thought Sexy Sadie was a song that could have been a more interesting song. Um, but but they were you know they they were very sparely produced and I just wonder what would have happened if Martin had exercised his normal oversight over some of those tunes. 
Scott, do you want to react to that? And then I have a really heretical question I want to ask both <laughs> of you. Uh, sure. So clearly, clearly, uh, George Martin was was uh, uh, back taking a back seat in this album for a variety of reasons. And I and I, I agree, the album would have been very very different had George been a little more active. But this is also the time of of the band, the the band meaning the the American band. Mm-hmm. And you know, certainly the Beatles, especially Harrison, have been listening to that. They wanted to get away from all of the production stuff, and that's why there aren't as many studio tricks on the White Album. That's why it's, it's more sparse-sounding, and I really, really like that about this album. I like the fact that it is a completely different feel than other Beatles albums and that there is so much variety in it. Okay, here's my heretical question. Is this really a good album? And, 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 I, mean, I, and I mean it, too. I mean, uh, I think, Metcalf, you and I have talked about this, that, you know, if— Rubber Soul or Revolver had never been released, and then today's you know, like Radiohead or somebody came out with that exact product. Everybody would go, "Wow, this is an amazing album. <laughs> this is an incredible album." But I don't know that that the White Album is in that category. It's certainly not in that category in the sense that on Revolver and Rubber Soul, there basically isn't any. There's no soft spots or you know bruises or damage. There's just like one amazing product after another. So, but but. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that this is... You're wrong. I'm wrong. Okay, go ahead, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I happen to think it's a great album. I, I, you know, I always say I, I have trouble picking my favorite Beatles album because they're all so, so good. It is true that unlike a rubber solo revolver, uh, it's not every song on those albums is, is great for the most part, whereas on White Album, you could probably take a couple off and it wouldn't be so bad. But that, to me, is kind of the fun of the album and the, what makes it so enjoyable is that... You're, you're kind of, um, uh, you've got this, this variety, which I keep talking about, and you do have amazing songs in there. I would, I would argue that the arrangements of some of the songs, even the ones that are more sparse, are really well thought out. And, of course, there are the throwaway, you know, why don't we do it in the road things that, that make it kind of fun. So there's a humor going through it. There's a gravitas going through it. There's clearly um, uh, some very moving songs, very emotional songs. And um, and they're also examples of them really having fun. So uh, I, I really enjoy the album. I can also sit through Revolution 9, so maybe I'm not the best person to ask. <laughs> what do you think, Mika? Well, there's always one tragically hip person who, who says they love Revolution 9. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, I think that's basically right. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure they were actually having that much fun with some of those so-called throwaways. I mean, I think it was a... I mean, I think Scott uh, points out in his presentation, you know, there was a great deal of tension, uh, musical and personal and otherwise, going on during the making of that album. So I'm not, I'm not sure we get a sense of uh, fun exactly. But, you know, it does raise the question. I, d- I don't know whether you're tired of this, uh, this little game or not, Scott. But, I mean, uh, as you know, all over the Internet there's, there seems to be you know, a desire to play, what if the White Album were just one disc? What would we keep mm-hmm. and what would we throw away? And I do think that is a, a kind of an interesting thing to um, to think about, especially on the side of what would we definitely keep, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the ones that would be jettisoned, I think there can be perhaps more argument about. But, um, you know, I, th- I think there's four or five just masterpieces on the White Album and that they, they should be kept and I don't know whether this is something that you feel like talking about or not. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's certainly a, a, a nice uh, game to play about what, what you put on a single white album, and many people now with the advantages of creating your own playlist can, can do that. 
Um, I think if I can uh, um, address sort of well, this kind of feeds into this, is that I think there's a lot of revisionist history that's been going on since the 50th anniversary album has been released. Because when you listen to the album, the box set, the super deluxe box set, and you hear some of the outtakes, you hear the Beatles having fun in the studio. So all of these articles have been coming out saying, oh, no, it really wasn't very bad at all. It was a lot of fun. Well, of course, that's not true. It's a gray area. Mm. When you're playing in a band... You have times where you are just all jamming and having fun and joking around, and you have other times where you just want to kill the drummer, and um, uh, you know uh, there's something else that's bothering you that you brought into the sessions or that's, that is making the sessions not work as well. And certainly the Beatles had all of this different pressure, business pressure. Uh, Yoko's now sitting in the studio with them, but Paul has a new girlfriend. There's um, all kinds of things going on. Brian Epstein, their manager, has died, and yet... There were times when they could all have fun. And I think when you try and put together a single white album, uh, a selection of single white album tracks, there are tracks in there where they're clearly all jamming together. You know, Happiness is a Warm Gun is one. I think Sexy Sadie, I'd, I'd like that. It has a different feel um, than, than a rocker, but it, it's a, a great song. And they're all in there. They're all providing their parts. They're having a good time doing it. Revolution, you know, there are songs like that. And then there are other songs where they're just kind of goofing off, and sometimes it's just Paul or Paul and Ringo or George and John or what have you. So um, if you put together a single album, you can almost do different types of single albums. You can do sort of the fun album. You can do the, 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 the moody, emotional album, which has Julia and Long, Long, Long and maybe uh, Mother Nature's Son, or songs that are a little more introspective you can put on while you're having your your sunday brunch and and, that, and you put on your dance album that's what's great about the white album is you you can make different single albums out of it mm. uh, paul sir paul says it was not a pleasant experience but that may be one of the things that contributed to making it the very special product that it was um and and you know um Steve Noah Behrman, the jazz pianist and composer, was just commenting on social media about as this, we were heading to the show, and he said, "Yes, there are some songs on this, on these two discs that are less worthy than other ones, but that's kind of interesting and fun too. I mean, you could make the argument, I suppose, that if you're Radiohead putting out your second or third album, you might not even really be allowed to try something that doesn't work. You know, you have to establish yourself. Maybe the Beatles are in a position at this point where they can afford to show you stuff that, you know, is maybe a little less perfect. No, I think that's a really good point. And it sort of gets back to the original uh, thought uh, about, you know, the previous albums with, with almost no exceptions were kind of an upward arc, you know, what, what are they going to do next? What, what's the next set of boundaries that they're going to smash? And what, what uh, new sounds are they going to come up with that we haven't heard before? And you, you do have to set that, that attitude aside for this album and, and think about where they were culturally and where they were personally, I think, in a whole different way, because clearly they weren't interested in continuing that trajectory, at least at that moment. All right. At some point in this conversation, I want to talk about where they were culturally, where they were personally, and where all of us were culturally and historically. But right now, we're going to take a little break. We're going to play one of the songs that some people, I think, would probably leave off some of these playlists that Scott and Steve are talking about.
talking about the Wade album with Scott Fryman, musicologist, composer, producer, and lecturer behind Deconstructing the Beatles, and our resident music savant, Steve Metcalf, the seventh Beatle director of the University of Hartford's President's College. Um, so we're hearing, while my guitar gently weeps, but obviously not the version of it that we all know. So Scott Fryman, what are we hearing? So we're hearing one of the demos from the Esher a set of recordings that the Beatles made when they got back from India. They all went to George Harrison's house, and they did something that they had never really done before, which is they all contributed their songs. They put them together, or George put them together on a single tape, and then he made copies for each of the Beatles. So they actually went through this process of kind of demoing, here's what I wrote, here's what you wrote, and some of them are just solo performances. Some of them, the other Beatles picked up a tambourine or something or sang some harmony. And so when they walked into the studio, they knew most of the songs that would show up on the White Album. Previously to the White Album, certainly previous to Pepper, oftentimes John and Paul would come in with a song that they had worked on together. They would teach it to George and Ringo, and then they would, we'd, they would do a couple takes of it. Uh, so this is a different way that the Beatles are working now. They're demoing all their songs together before they get into the studio. So uh, maybe this is a, also a moment, Steve Menkap, to talk a little bit about, uh, you may want to say something musicologically about the song, too, but, you know, I, 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 we've alluded to this a couple of times, but maybe we need to say it more affirmatively or more negatively. The Beatles, as, a, as an interpersonal set, are really in trouble at this point. I mean, they, from most accounts, Lennon and McCartney are not interested in each other's creations. Uh, uh, Yoko Ono's around a lot, which is apparently causing problems. There's a sense in which maybe this unit isn't going to be able to continue functioning that much longer. Yeah, and I think I think you can actually pick up cues to that effect in in some of the some of the songs. Although, as Scott says, maybe we're guilty of sort of you know retro interpreting, but. Before we forget, I just want to say one thing about While My Guitar. The, the several demos, um, the Esher demo we just heard, and, and, and I think there's one or two others that are that are in a similar vein but a little bit different. Um, you know, usually when you hear those demos or you hear the early outtakes, you're very satisfied that they eventually picked the right feel and the right orchestrations and the right, you know, kind of rhythmic feel for the thing, and, and they always seem to be unerringly the released product always seemed to be the best. In this case, I was actually thinking that some of those early, I don't know how you feel, Scott, but I think some of those early While My Guitar takes, uh, in which it's really quite a different song and different feel altogether, uh, are, are beautiful. And, and you, you, you hear that lovely song in an entirely different light. Absolutely. In fact, uh, when I do um, my lectures, or even when people see the Deconstructing the White Album film, and I play the excerpt of Take One in the studio of just George on guitar with Paul on a little bit of harmonium in the background, and people have tears in their eyes right. because it's really emotional. And you lose that 
with the Eric Clapton version. I love the Eric Clapton version, the, the final version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps that everyone knows, but that acoustic version of the song would have been wonderful. So I, I totally agree. Um, Which, by the way, does raise a question mm-hmm. while we're at this of, you know, the, the re-release of the, of the 2018 mixes and stuff. What, what is, I, I mean, I, I find that it's interesting to think about are those remixes now to be considered the definitive versions of those songs, or, or are they more, I don't know, sort of director's cuts that, that just form a little alternative experience that we can visit from time to time? In other words, is, is there even such a thing anymore as definitive versions? Yeah, so I, um, I'll take a stab at answering that. I don't think there is. And I'll tell you why. Even before CDs, you know, you have people who say, my American mono vinyl is... That's the definitive. That's the best version because that's what I grew up with. And right. someone says, no, the British stereo version is better. So you, have, you already have lots of different versions out there. What, what uh, Giles Martin did, what George Martin's son, in remixing this album, is he did some wonderful stuff in making the instruments pop a little bit more and trying not to take away any of the quality of the original recordings, just making it, uh, the instruments more distinct. And I think it sounds wonderful. There's also a surround version. Well, the Beatles didn't have surround sound. So um, there's a mono version, there's a stereo version, there's the remix stereo version, you know, it, it, and what's the definitive version? Uh, whichever one you like the best. Mm. Um, I, I, maybe at this point I, I will bring up sort of the question that's been, it's not even a question, it's maybe an observation I want you to react to. So, you know, there's a reason why Joan Didion calls her essay The White Album, even though it doesn't talk about the Beatles or the White Album at all. Uh, but it, it does seem as though this is an unusual Beatles artifact in the way that people, maybe just because of the blankness of the cover, people felt free to inscribe their own interpretations and derive their own ideas about this. So famously, you know, Charles Manson was listening to this and hearing all kinds of things that no Beatle ever intended to put in it. Um, people were also listening to it at the height uh, of the Paul is Dead mania, which I, at age 14, uh, was sort of a part and was very interested in. Uh, and there was sort of a way in which it, this album, because it had some ominous-sounding songs and some songs that didn't really sound like anything the Beatles had ever done before, and, and because there's, there seemed to be at times a sense of doom or maybe a sense of anger or maybe we're picking up the fact that they were very, very divided among themselves, uh, a way in which people got all kinds of dark ideas uh, out of this album in, in, in a way that I don't think applies to any other Beatles album. And I, I wonder if that's just because of the time it's located in, too. It's kind of the seminal album about 1968 and the years that followed. And those were very, very dark times, uh, in, at least in American history. I don't know. What do you guys make of all that? <laughs> Scott, you want to take that one? <laughs> um, well, it, it's, uh, it's a time of revolution, right? There's, there's um, revolution in, uh, in, in Europe, Eastern Europe. Uh, Russians are coming in to, to Czech, Czechoslovakia. You've got um, people being assassinated like Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. You've got protests at uh, the Democratic Convention where, where American cops are beating up American college students. Uh, it's a very tense time. And when I talk about this album and I talk about uh, the next albums, uh, like Abbey Road, um, and you look at some of the things that John would ultimately do with his peace movement and the bed-ins and so forth, people who were there say, you've got to remember, this was a really scary time. And the Beatles, even though they were musicians, we look to them oftentimes for what we should be thinking about and, and to kind of validate 
what was going on in our own lives. So you get a little bit of that, certainly, from the White Album. There is definitely this dark undercurrent to that album. And back to our single album question, I think you could put together a single album that's very, very dark from White Album songs. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, having, having sort of lived through this at a slightly more advanced age than you two young'uns, uh, I hope this doesn't sound too revisionist, but I think, you know, I think you're right that, that obviously this was a time of great fragmentation and chaos throughout the world. The, the thing is, it's hard to remember really how uh, comprehensive the Beatles' influence on, on contemporary life was. I mean, not just music, but clothing and politics and language um, and just the idea of avant-garde art and what its relationship to pop culture might be. I mean, all of these things were areas where people really looked to the Beatles for guidance and for sort of information in a way that I, I, I just can't think of, a, of another example before or since. So when you get to the White Album and, and you kind of sense that the Beatles are coming apart a little bit, I think it was a very kind of uh, nerve-wracking and, and, uh, and kind of anxiety-producing moment. Uh, not that it wasn't already that, but, but I think the Beatles' fragmentation contributed to that, uh, and this album in particular. Right. This is not a reassuring album no. for people who are already in trouble. Right. Um, all right. Let's uh, get back to musicology a little bit here. Uh, we're going to listen to uh, This is also from Scott Fryman's uh, lecture. Uh, this is um, some of the multi-tracking of Happiness is a Warm Gun. Maybe before we play this clip, Scott, may, you can set it up a little bit. Just talk about what it, what's going on. What are they trying to do with this song in the studio? So Happiness is a Warm Gun is a multi-part song. It's a sort of a, a joined together of different fragments of songs that John was playing around with, similar to what they would eventually do on the second side of Abbey Road. And the Beatles said this was the most fun or one of the most uh, fun they had uh, during the White Album sessions because they're all there. They're all trying different things. It's complicated to get from the first section to the second section to the third. So Ringo's trying to figure out what drum beat to put in there. And it just uh, it makes a really interesting song. Ha- Happiness is a Warm Gun, by the way, was a article that George Martin found in American Rifleman, of all places. Why he was reading that, I don't know. <laughs> but he found this article, Happiness is a Warm Gun, namely happiness is, is when you shot a gun and killed something. And, you know, John thought that was kind of funny and wrote this song. And, of course, you look at it in a whole new light when you, you realize he was actually killed by a gun. So... Uh, even a song like this, which I think is fun and the Beatles having fun, has that dark undercurrent given what we know now about Lennon's death. Go. I need a fix because I'm going down, down to the bits that I left uptown. I need a fix because I'm going down. Mother Superior jumped the gun. 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 All 
All right. So um, one thing that I, little thing that I hear here, I'm not the non-musicologist uh, on this show, but Steve Metcalf, you and I have talked a lot over the years about, you know, there's this sort of canard that Ringo Starr is not a good drummer, uh, and and it's obviously a completely unfair thing. And one thing you can hear, even when they, when Scott or whoever does this isolates that one little track, is there's rhythmically some pretty interesting things going on. There. Well, I was just going to say that very thing. First of all, I think that canard is rapidly disappearing. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking to myself uh, anew when we isolate the tambourine and the, I guess, the snare there. You know, here they are doing these crazy, irregular, asymmetric meters, uh, and of course they don't read music and they're not they're not looking at charts. Uh, it's in, and what Ringo's playing is not even necessarily all downbeat stuff. Uh, it's just incredible to me that they somehow kept all of this in in their head. You know, and and <laughs> I mean I don't know how many takes they required, but. It's very complicated stuff to be doing just out of your out of your head without any without any music in front of you. Yeah, people are always amazed that the Beatles didn't read or write music because all of this stuff um, sounds so put together, and some of it's pretty complex. And it's all you know, playing by ear, learning, listening, and uh, uh, and you've got to have a good drummer behind all of that. Otherwise, you just fall apart. And, right. and I think Ringo was perfect for that band. Right. Um, I mean. Brian Wilson didn't read music either and would show up and just like tell everybody in the orchestra exactly <laughs> what their part was. Uh, just all kept in his, in his incredible uh, library of a head. All right. So I, I, when we first started talking about uh, doing a show about the White Album, I said to Jonathan McNichol, Metcalf's going to want to talk about uh, McCartney's range of vocal productions because uh, I know because he talks about it. So <laughs> um, I guess should we play the clip first and then, then let him go? Yeah, let's do it. Take it away. Okay, so first, if you just played those those two tracks, the end of Do It In The Road and the beginning of I Will, to somebody who had never heard this before, I think they could be forgiven for doubting that this was the same human being singing on both tracks. I mean, that's how different those voices are. And and I simply, it's true, I've, I've had this uh, sort of trope for a, a long time, and, it, and it's not new with the White Album, but the White Album, I think, illustrates it maybe more... I don't know, perfectly than any other Beatles album, is that, you know, whatever else you say about the Beatles and their skills and their amazing talents, Paul McCartney's voice is just one of the wonders of popular music of the 20th century. I mean, because it is so, so protean and so varied and so infinitely variable depending on what the material is that uh, th there just is there's no corollary to it anywhere I mean it's one of the ironies of the Beatles I think is that they are one of the great sort of sing-along groups you play the album you sing along with it except there are all kinds of things that Paul does that mortals for the most part can't do uh, and you know his range is so broad and stuff like that that you know, the rest of us are jumping down to other octaves in order to stay with them <laughs> well I mean uh, you know, just very quickly, the rest of the White Album, but besides those two songs, we have 
Back in the USSR, Rocky Raccoon, Blackbird, Honey Pie, Obladi, and Dr. all of them. Felder. And Helter Scale, yeah, right. Martha, my dear. And Martha, my dear. And all of them really call for a slightly different, or in some cases not so slightly, different vocal timbre and quality. And it's it's just remarkable. I mean, all right. You know, if, I, if yeah, I can add to that, sure. I was yeah. going to say that every, every one of those songs you've mentioned is a completely different style of music, right? right. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that the person who wrote Helter Skelter. Uh, would have written Mother Nature's Son, for example. Or Honey um, Pie. Right, Honey Pie. And some of the chord changes he uses and some of the you know, the, the accompaniments that he picks on his bass or whether he's playing guitar or piano. And he's playing different instruments, too. So uh, a real multi-talent. And, uh, you know, the, they, that's, uh, I think, a large part of the White Album is, you know, each one of the songwriting Beatles has a major influence on that album. And you could, that's, that's Paul's influence, his, mm. his instrumentation, his arranging skills and the multi, uh, the, all the different styles of music that he brings to that album. So, um, Scott, as we go into this break, I'm going to have uh, Jonathan start playing uh, the Julia rehearsals from the 50th anniversary reissue, and uh, if you don't regard this as apostasy, let you kind of talk over it uh, a, a little bit as we head into the break. What are, what are we listening for here? What are we hearing? So this is an unearthed rehearsal of Julia where John's trying out some different accompaniments. And what's interesting, getting back to some of our earlier discussions, is even though this is a John song, Paul's up in the booth encouraging John, giving him suggestions, just like John was up in the booth when Paul was doing Blackbird. So uh, it's not like uh, John's doing this and all the other Beatles have vanished. Paul's still there, and, and he's up there with George Martin making suggestions. So John, you'll hear, has a little bit of uncertainty about what is the exact right accompaniment. It's a hard song to play, and he starts with that Donovan finger-picking, and then it becomes the song that we all know and love. Um. As we play this, Metcalf, is this one of the songs you think George Martin might have uh, sweetened up a little bit, or do you like it? The kind of the actually, of actually, no. Guy? I yeah. I think the purity of this song just you know is what it is and needs to be. All right, uh, we're gonna just go out with that. We're gonna come back with more of Scott and Steve after the proverbial this. Do you think it's better like that? I can sing it better, but I can't play it better. I'll just try picking it again, but slightly faster. All right, we're back. Usually this is the place where Kyone Wolf says who did what, but Kyone Wolf is dealing uh, with a uh, an emergency, not a, to her. She's fine uh, right now. So um, I will say that uh, Jonathan McNichol pretty much is the George Martin of this particular show. He put the whole show together. Uh, I'm not really aware of anybody else who did, <laughs> did anything. But senior producer Betsy Kaplan is on site right now anyway. And we always get some kind of help from Gina Montrudas. So thank you to all those people. The part of Bill Curry was played by Pete Best. Uh, and uh, tomorrow we are going to reconvene. Well, it's not the nose. It is the nose. It's not clear. We're going to talk about the good place. Basically, Carmen Basque off has who's the producer on where we live has really is kind of borderline threatening us with things that could happen to us if we don't have a conversation about the show the good place so that is what's going to happen tomorrow it will resemble a version of the nose our weekly cultural roundtable but will not exactly be that um, all right so uh, in uh, in studio with me right now is Steve Metcalf my friend and uh, director of the University of Hartford's President's College and many many other musical things besides uh, Scott Fryman musicologist composer producer and lecturer behind deconstructing the Beatles. Deconstructing the Beatles' White Album will show at the Fairfield Theater Company on Monday night, January 28th at 7.30. 
Steve and I will not be there because we are rehearsing Elvis, uh, which we are going to do a conversation about at Watkinson on Wednesday night with our friends Jim Chapdelaine and the amazing Latanya Farrell. Uh, all right, so um, we're in the final segment of this conversation, and um, you know it's such a big, sprawling double album. Inevitably, some songs kind of get overlooked or lost a little bit. Metcalf, we're, we're about to play one of the songs that you say has grown on you. Uh, over the years, it's a it's a George Harrison song. What, say something about it. Well, this is the song called "Long, Long, Long," and I freely admit that when the album first came out, even though I was always a great George fan and looked forward to whatever his you know, usually sparse contribution would be on every new album, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to this particular tune. And so it's only been over the years that uh, it has kind of grown on me, not only from the standpoint of it being, I think, a, you know, a great piece of work as an as a example of George's songwriting craft, but also as a kind of sonic presentation. I mean, it's, it sounds very different from anything else on the album and kind of different, I think, from anything else George maybe did as a Beatle. Um, and it's got a very interesting little uh, instrumental bed. And in fact, Scott, I, I know it's credited as a Hammond organ, but I, I don't know any Hammond organs that sound quite like the instrument that's featured on this song. I, I think it was a Lowry organ. I see. Okay. Well, that would that would make a little more sense. I I actually wondered if it was if they had snuck their old Mellotron into that because it 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 has that quality a little bit. But it but it's a very I think you you'd agree. The sound world, as we say, uh, of this song is just very interesting and quite unlike anything else uh, on the album, and and I would argue in the in the George canon. Scott, did you want to say anything about it before we yeah, play it? I, I totally agree. I love that song, and what was so interesting about it is is the way it was placed on the White Album is at the end of Helter Skelter, mm. which on the stereo version ends with Ringo shouting, "I've got blisters on my fingers," and then all of a sudden. The whole volume just drops. Right, That's and true. on the new remix, one of the songs that I like the best of what from what uh, Giles Martin did is the remix of "Long, Long, Long." Right. It's still there. It's still quiet, but it really comes out a lot more. You really hear the texture of the instruments. You hear the the, the sound of of George's voice, and it's just beautiful. This is, in fact, a 2018 uh, mix from the 50th anniversary Super Deluxe reissue. It's been a long, long, long time How could I ever have lost you When I So uh, in the time that remains, as we're talking here about the White Album, it seems as though, you know, I remember 
getting the White Album and encountering a lot of stuff that I never heard before. And there was one, more than one song named Revolution, which I found confusing. Uh, so maybe that's sort of the place we need to end. And why don't we go to uh, a take from uh, Scott Fryman's lecture? Uh, this, I think, is Revolution, take 20. So, Scott Fryman, this feels like some kind of bridge between Revolution and Revolution Number 9. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Revolution was the first song the Beatles worked on, and by the time they got to take uh, 18, uh, it started to extend into this 10-minute jam, of which the last seven minutes was just crazy. And, And it included Yoko, first time in the studio, playing a tape of loops and things that she had recorded um, and was just playing. Um, and much to everyone's shock, you know, all of a sudden there's this sound coming out and people are trying to figure out what it is, and it's Yoko's tape. And what ultimately happens, the, sh- the short version, is that John takes the last seven minutes of that song and turns it into Revolution 9, and the first three minutes ultimately evolve into what was called Revolution 1, the first song from side four, if you had the vinyl. Yeah. Metcalf? Well, you know, if you had to choose a song that, that kind of, uh, I mean, to get to your point about the Beatles uh, as a as a sort of uh, emblem of what was going on at that time, if you had to take a song that sort of represented in music the year 1968, I think that would be the one. Um, maybe we I only have a couple of minutes left and we want to end with a, a piece of music too. But, um, you know, I, there's a way we were sort of talking about uh, as we were emailing around about this, about, you know, what what survives in different ways. And I, I think Blackbird probably is the most covered song, and it's actually turned into almost a jazz standard. I mean, there's five or six jazz vocalists that I can think of uh, who've done Blackbird. But I'm, I'm sort of wondering for both of you, um, and Scott, we could start with you. I don't know, what's the song that really survives for you that's, that you feel is kind of, you know, maybe a rock standard? Well, uh, a tough one. You know, uh, While My Guitar, definitely. But I'm going to pick a strange one and say birthday because I know that every time my band plays a gig and someone has a birthday, that's the song we play. So <laughs> it was uh, Paul's attempt to try and write a new happy birthday song, and that's the one that survives. So uh, it may be, uh, it's certainly not the best song on the White Album, but it's one that I think has lasting power. Mm. How about you, Mick Well, it's not a rock song, but I mean, I, I think Julia is, is probably as good a song as John ever produced, and, and I never get tired of hearing it, so... Julia. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go out with music, but before we do that, uh, or I don't know how much of music we have. Can you start it yet under me? No. Okay. We just have to talk a little bit, a little tiny bit more. First of all, I want to thank uh, these two gentlemen, and I assume we have a date for Abbey Road or something <laughs> somewhere in the future, but um, I want to thank Scott Fryman once again, musicologist and a composer and a producer and the lecturer behind Deconstructing the Beatles. Uh, Steve Metcalf is, of course, the seventh Beatle and director of the University of Hartford's President's College. Uh, I want to, for the third time in this show, 
say that uh, on Wednesday night, uh, the 30th of January, at Watkinson School, I think starting at 7, but there's a wonderful dinner beforehand that you can also attend. If you go to Watkinson.org, uh, we are going to do some thinking and talking uh, about Elvis. Uh, uh, joining me and Steve will be the singer Latanya Farrell and, and the guitar hero Steve Metcalf. Oh, Jim what, Chap. What, Jim. What, did, what, did, what did I just say? You said my name. Oh, the guitar hero, Jim Chapdelaine. I'm sorry. I'm tired. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, this, these things have been uh, really fun, these Beatles conversations. And so, so, Scott, what does come next? Is Abbey Road next for you? We actually filmed uh, two films on Abbey Road. There was too much to put into one. So we have a side one film and a side two film. They will be released in theaters nationwide uh, later this summer. But Deconstructing Magical Mystery Tour opens all across the country next uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. So check your listings at deconstructingthebeatles.com. And all my previous lectures are all available on DVD, including one called Chords and Progressions, which is a songwriting course for Beatles fans. All right. So um, we're going to say goodnight right now. Uh, in fact, we'll let them say goodnight. Sweet dreams.